Welcome to episode one of the Media Sport podcast series, which is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. This series presents interviews with both emerging and established researchers about how and why the intersections between sport, digital media, mobile technologies and telecommunications matter in a global age. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, an Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm fortunate to be joined today by Professor Andy Mia, Chair of Ethics and Emerging Technologies and Director of the Creative Futures Institute at the University of West Scotland. Andy will be speaking with us from Nanjing, China, where is he attending the Second Summer Youth Olympics. Andy's a prolific author and presenter who works across the boundaries of a number of disciplines, including philosophy, medical law, and the science of sport. His books include The Olympics, The Basics, Human Futures, The Medicalization of Cyberspace, and the first ever book to be published on gene doping, Genetically Modified Athletes. Further information about him can be found at his website, andymia.net. Mia spelled M-I-A-H. Andy, thanks for joining me. Could you share with us what you're doing in Nanjing at the moment? Absolutely. So I'm here with the International Olympic Committee, which has set up something called the Young Reporters Programme. They've essentially invited 35 young people from all over the world, from five continents, to come and learn how to be an Olympic reporter. So they'll spend their 18 or so days with mentors uh, from who are really world-leading professionals in their field, in photography and broadcast and print, and I'm the social media mentor. And so they spend a couple of days with each of us learning how to push out content, create innovative work using these technologies, and uh, effectively learn how to learn, become an Olympic reporter. Okay, and what, what's being produced out of that? I notice you've, you've been recently posting some videos on YouTube and so on. Yeah, so uh, in my section, the students learn how to really be a mobile broadcaster. So one of the things we're working with is Google Glass. And we're exploring what kind of footage you can create with that. We're putting glass on the athletes to see what they film, uh, which is really exciting because most of the athletes have never heard of this before, never seen it before. But really, uh, they really adapt to it very quickly. So we've got some beautiful footage from speed skating, from skateboarding, and from basketball. Uh, so what they're doing is going out and, and making packages with their mobile phones and uh, editing it in iMovie, in YouTube, and just pushing it out onto our channels. So through my work with them, they're learning how to be a mobile journalist, someone that is less reliant on a studio, less reliant on very expensive equipment, but is able to get things out in real time as quickly as possible. And how, is, how did the connection with Google Glass come about? I mean, there's a lot of hype around it. There's been a lot of criticism, some perhaps fair, some not so fair. I mean, why Google Glass uh, of, of all the sort of technologies that you could have chosen or used? Well, I started working with Glass a couple of months ago as an explorer, and I was interested in particularly about uh, mobile health technologies. I think it's, we're moving into an era of wearable technology, and Glass seemed to be an interesting prototype, and a glimpse into that future as, a, as a really one of the first technologies that allows us to see what it will be like to interact with digital technology without having to hold it. Uh, there's other things that are interesting about glass that are particularly of, of, of interest in a sports context, and that's that one of its unique uh, aspects is that it, it gives you a line of sight uh, broadcast. So, whereas things like GoPro and other sort of head cameras are slightly above you or slightly to the left or right of your eyes, Google Glass is a very light piece of apparatus that an athlete can just simply put on without any training and, uh, and it can just go and do their thing as they would typically perform in their sports. 
and they can be shooting the whole thing. So I think what's unique about it is that line of sight perspective, uh, which we've never really had in sports. And what what are the? I mean, it's quite fascinating. What are what are the responses and the and the, the feedback you're getting as you as you're placing the glasses on athletes at the moment? Oh, they're just so excited to try it out. A few of them have heard of it. Um, those that have heard of it just really want to have a go because they they are just aware of it being the sort of latest thing. But most people haven't even heard of it or haven't even seen it. So. Uh, those people, for example, when one Chinese skater we used it on yesterday, he was anxious about breaking it. You know, a skateboarder can fall and things, but it's it, so he was worried most about that. But in fact, uh, it withstood quite a bit of intense sort of impact, uh, stayed on his head, and within you know, a few minutes, he was very able to, to just perform as he would typically do so. And um, and so I think that the response of the athletes generally is is of curiosity, of excitement, and they. Um, they really want to play with it and see what they can do, see how, how far they can push it, I think. I, under, I understand you're right in the middle of this at the moment, but, I mean, you, you're someone who, who thinks forward into the future. I mean, what do you see the most useful applications of Google Glass in this context as um, media content provision and training, I mean, as or as, indeed, a, a tool of journalism? What are, what are the things where you're seeing it having most traction? Well, I think there's a couple of couple of things where I think it's of, of particular value. One is in a training context, so I'm aware of, of athletes and, and sports organizations that are beginning to think of it as a tool to allow athletes to train better. So, for example, I met uh, someone that's a rower uh, recently, and they want to put glass onto rowers to provide visual feedback about their stroke pace and so on, uh, because one of the problems is that they have to use an artificial cue at the front of the boat to give some indication of stroke. Whereas if you can put some glass on an athlete and they can simply see it within their field of vision, uh, it's a much more effective way of, of conveying what's happening. So I think that there's a lot of potential within a training context. You might also have glass on a basketball player and it will tell the athlete whether they've jumped at their optimal height to make the shot. Um, so it can provide all sorts of, sort of biometric uh, measurements that can give uh, sort of real-time visual feedback to an athlete to help them understand whether their performance is optimal for what they're trying to do. Um, the athletes we've used it on so far see that value quite quickly. They can see how it might be useful within a training context just to even give them a perspective on how they're moving within the field of play. Um, so as a visual feedback device, I think it's particularly of value for spectators. I think there's also something really exciting about being brought into the field of play through this technology. So it can enhance and change the spectator experiences. You can imagine uh, any kind of team match where you can tune in to whichever lens you're, of the athlete you're wanting to follow and have your own personalised viewing experience. And I think that sort of thing is something that spectators will want to do as well. And what, um, I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this question a number of times before. What's your response to the privacy concerns and so on you see going on around Google Glass? Well, I think that they are... It's quite interesting. They're, they're, of all the people, one of the things I'm doing is, is making a documentary of first-time wearers. So I, I typically will go out onto the streets and just wear them and see what sorts of reactions I get. Now, I think it's quite hard for someone to kind of walk up to you and say, we don't, you know, why, you're invading my privacy. <laughs> but I, I think that the more typical response is, is actually of, of curiosity. People ask, what is it? And then they say, can I try it? And when they try it, they're like, wow, this is incredible. Uh, the reaction typically is of just of complete wonderment when they see what's, what, what this thing can do. Um, there's this wonderful app within it that's a stargazing app, so you can open it up and look up into the sky and see 
it's a constellation, star constellations, and, and people just love this app. I think the, um, the concerns about privacy are, are really interesting, not least because we kind of live in the world of, of pervasive recording. And so people are getting used to the idea of being constantly on film. You know, we walk around an urban environment and you're being shot by CCTV all the time. So I think that whilst at the moment we're still in this very kind of transitional mo moment where something like this is still quite novel and people have questions about it, concerns about it, I suspect that those kinds of anxieties about privacy will begin to wane. Um, you, you, you also may find that there will be kind of counter-glass technology. Um, so, for example, you could be uh, wearing something, a pair of glasses perhaps, that will reflect the gaze of a camera lens so that anyone that is walking past you with lens will only see a kind of blank image or a blurred image when they when they go past you and therefore protecting your face. So I think we will see all sorts of countermeasures of, of, of this sort of surveillance uh, through technology as well. Hmm. And just drawing back, I'm, I'm obviously familiar with your research, having cited it and used it in my own research, but you... And then sort of going through your website, which is, you know, very extensive and very impressive in a lot of ways. How did you, how have you come to be in your current position as chair of ethics and emerging technologies? What's your intellectual trajectory? Well, I, um, I began in sports science. So I did an undergraduate degree in sports science where I studied and was quite enthusiastic about things like biomechanics, physiology, psychology. But I majored in philosophy and ethics and got particularly interested in, around about the year 1996 in technology and sport and the ethical issues that come out of it. At that time, the Human Genome Project was just sort of beginning to think about wrapping up. And a few years later, I focused my PhD on genetic modification in sport at the time when, when people were really kind of anxious about the prospect of designer babies. I remember in 1998... Um, there was an article published in New Scientist magazine that was about performance genes, one of the first articles to actually explain whether it's possible to characterize a performance gene that could then be modified to enhance a performance. And this was really the beginning point of the IOC and RADA's sort of investigations of this topic. And that stuck with me for quite a while because it's, uh, it was a really live topic. It remains a big, big pressing issue for the world of sport because this is the new frontier of performance enhancements. And so for a decade, I guess I was focused on that. Uh, but at the same time, I've always been interested in the relationship between biological and digital technologies and their, and their common ground as well. So concurrent to this research, I was, I was investigating digital technology as well, particularly interested in how we interact with each other online, uh, how digital technology changes the way we communicate, the kinds of sense of self that we have, and, um, and the kind of common connection between the two areas was this sense of a kind of changing human condition either through communication or through simply our kind of biological makeup that may change the parameters of what we think it is to be human. Um, and so after my PhD, I also did a degree of master, a master degree in, in medical law because one of the things that's really challenging is in both the digital and with biological technologies is, um, is the implications this has for how society organizes itself. So uh, in simple terms, you know, whether we have a right to privacy, whether we have a right to be forgotten, as is the sort of recent debate about Google, and it's um, updating its databases so that everything on its, uh, on its search engine is current or accurate. Um, those kinds of questions were really interesting. Equally, it was, it was fascinating to see how ill-prepared we are to deal with the era of biotechnology, um, simply trying to figure out whether, for example, the child of a... Of two parents who have been genetically modified would be entitled to take part in sports. 
Yeah, that's a question that mm. the world of sports got no answer to. Um, whilst you've got organisations like Wilder that will say if you do any kind of gender thing, you're out. They haven't figured out what to do about the children or the children of the children who have been genetically modified. And it seems to me incongruous with the values of sport that someone of that enhanced but um, relatively innocent disposition would, would be banned from sport in the same way that it would be improper to prohibit uh, someone that has a disability uh, from participating in sport, I would argue that similarly, someone that has a genetic enhancement uh, would also have some claim to take part in sport. And that's a predicament that they haven't really figured out yet. Mm. Um, and at the moment, my work's looking at things like prosthetic technologies. In 2016, there's going to be this cybathlon that's going to take place in Switzerland, which was, is sort of pitched as the kind of next generation of prosthetic enhancements and, and these athletes will be using things like exoskeletons to try to undertake different kinds of performances. And so that slippage from therapy, technology that repairs humanity to making it better than well is a, is a real interest to me. And what, I mean, again, I'm, I'm sure this is hardly an original question given everything you've just described, but um, have you been following the Oscar Pistorius trial and, and, and the events of, that have gone on around here? <laughs> Yeah, I've followed, I followed Oscar Pistorius for quite a few years, as you can imagine. And I remember in 2012, I was really excited because I got tickets to the Paralympic gold medal, 100-meter uh, gold medal race. And he'd already kind of um, <laughs> he'd already kind of failed in, in the 200-meter sprint and made complaints about things. And uh, but I was so dead keen to see him. You know, I expected him to win his medal. But then within this game, you had this fascinating um, surprise story where he was he was beaten. He was beaten by uh, Alberto Olivero, and um, he was his claim after the race was that in fact Alberto's legs were too long. He felt that the um, measurements of, of his torso were in proportion were, were not proportional to the length of his prosthetic devices. The precise sort of claim that's been made about what makes Pistorius's legs unfair were being now <laughs> accused of, of Olivero's legs. And so um, he didn't come out well at that game. So <laughs> I didn't see him. I didn't see him win a medal, which is disappointing. And then three months later, he's um, in trouble for all sorts of other things. And uh, it's, it's a real sort of sad kind of fall of an, of an icon, really, because he was the only athlete in history that's really tried to challenge that distinction between the Olympics and Paralympic Games. And there have been other athletes that have been remarkably talented and done remarkable things with prosthetic limbs, but he was the only one that was saying, I want to be in the Olympic Games as well as the Paralympic Games. And he made it in 2012. So I think that the fall of his sort of status... Um, is a great loss to the future of sports because um, he was really the first person to, to suggest a future where Olympic and Paralympic athletes might actually compete together and be in a similar kind of category. Mm. Um, so, so whilst, of course, the great loss is of the life of his girlfriend, uh, I think there is a, a, also a significant loss for humanity in thinking about that future because I also think that it's a future we ought to aspire to. You know, here at the Youth Olympic Games, you've got... Uh, competitions with male and female athletes competing all together and uh, it seems to me that those separations that we have between male female olympic paralympic are just a product of, of, of history that they need not be in place uh, people talk about biological differences but actually in many disciplines those differences aren't significant and even if they are significant they're a product of the different histories of male and female sport we can get rid of them and it seems to me that would be a better world hmm. it's it, it's a fascinating argument and I was just listening, and throughout much of there, there's a there's a claim for what sport can show about broader social, cultural, and historical relations. I mean, why have all the as someone 
who could have gone in any number of directions. Why is it that you've keep, kept coming back to sport? What is it about sport that it shows something about the around the arguments you're trying to put forward? Oh, that's a really nice question. I've not really been asked that before, and it's, it's one I've thought about quite a lot because, uh, especially around the sort of genetics work that I did, I was took I was taken much more towards bioethics and looking at things that were really beyond sport. Things like uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or genetic selection, or you know any number of sort of bioethical issues that have nothing to do with sports. But I've always been fascinated in sports because I really believe that there are a place where where the sort of state of human evolution is revealed. You know, we've got the fastest athletes, the people that can throw the strongest. And it's also a place where there's a considerable amount of experimentation with technology to try to push those limits. So I think you can look at the history of sports, not not necessarily the sort of um, uh, legitimate history of sports, but the illegitimate history, the examples of people like um, the uh, doping athletes, so Lance Armstrong or... Uh, ben Johnson, you can look at these histories and and think about them as sort of examples where athletes were trying to transcend their human limits, if you like. And in doing so, you have quite quite interesting findings about what that might entail and what kind of future we might live in if we allow people to do this. So sports have, have always attracted me because of their experimentation with technology um, that is embedded into the culture of sports, especially since the 20th century particularly. And uh, so my argument has always been that you can't, it's impossible to think of modern-day sports without thinking about the development of technological innovation. Um, and and you know, certainly here, you, you see that very, in a very apparent way. You see athletes you know, using all sorts of interesting training techniques, the kinds of things that the WADA bans on its antidoping list are just the tip of the iceberg of the range of things that athletes might use to modify themselves or to enhance their performances. And, uh, and so I think you can look at sports as this test bed for all kinds of modifications that perhaps eventually we will find ourselves using in everyday life. Or the other way around, we might find that everyday life leads people to using this. And then sports, this kind of uh, anxieties about antidoping may simply dissipate and become much less significant. That future whereby athletes are simply using whatever they like to modify themselves, push themselves as far as they want to, uh, becomes a reality. And what's been the response of other researchers working in, you know, science and technology studies or bioethics to the sort of work you're presenting around sport, given that, I mean, I think most people who've worked in the area of, of, you know, sports sociology, sports history, any form of serious research often find that sense that it's a bit of a playground area. So, I mean, how have you, what's been the response to the sort of arguments you're putting forward? I would say there are, there are sort of three kinds of response to the arguments I make about sport and technology. One is this sort of standard anti-doping response, which is that these things are all inherently unethical, they're against the spirit of sport, That's not, they're not the sort of thing we should allow athletes to be doing. And that perspective comes from, that perspective comes from a, a view about our, the legitimate use of medical technologies. The history of anti-doping is in part a history of medical doctors or scientists who have tried their hardest to ensure that their work is not applied to a, a non-therapeutic context. So they are sort of inherently suspicious or, I guess, um, mistrustful of those that would argue that we should try to enhance humanity. And part of the history of that is, is this our broader history of, of what what that has entailed. So the, the uh, German Democratic Republic, so experimenting with athletes, doing things that are 
undermining their autonomy, forcing athletes to undergo you know, all kinds of sort of doping uh, in order to perform in sports. So the history we have in that area, I think it informs that sort of scepticism or anxiety about them doing it. The second uh, response is, is within the bioethics community and a growing community of people who actually feel it's, it's fine to modify ourselves. We've been doing it since time immemorial and we've done it through through all numbers of technologies from simply introducing fluoride into tap water to trying to in fact, the broad project of, of Western medicine may be seen as a kind of transhuman project, an attempt to ensure that we have uh, the capacity to live as long and as healthy a life as possible. And so I think the, um, I think those perspectives would, would suggest that, that actually this trajectory towards enhancement is simply an extension of the trajectory of human, humanity more generally. We are, if we are committed to living long, healthy lives, then we are also committed to the pursuit of human enhancement, and sports are, uh, are inextricable from that pursuit. Um, and then I think there's, there's another perspective where, um, where people who are somewhat indifferent to these things and, and don't really have any strong feelings about them, and, and there are good examples even within the world of sport like that. So, for example, in 2006, there's a debate in sport about hyperbaric chambers, and uh, these are these are small environments that change the density of oxygen within the air, simulating alti- different altitudes that would allow an athlete to gain a performance enhancement that's equivalent to going to different altitudes and, and affecting the amount of oxygen within their blood that can change their capacities. And with this sort of example, most people I spoke to back in 2006 really had no particular view on the ethics of hyperbaric chambers. It wasn't introducing any kind of synthetic substance. People just didn't really have a strong view about it. And I think many forms of technology are a bit like that. They, the, the ones we hear about, the steroids and things like that, are so immersed in a kind of history of this war on drugs that countries have fought that they, the moral judgment about them, I think, is skewed. Most people don't realise that the enhancements you gain from things like steroids is an enhancement born out of what the technology allows you to do. It allows you to train harder. Um, so far from being a shortcut to performance, the advantage someone has by using this is born out of the fact that they can train harder and work harder. Um, so I think that those, that sort of third perspective, the ambivalence towards technological change, is, is growing. And it's growing because people see that the technology can do a great deal for us. It is something that we should try to value uh, more. People worry about the risks to health, but it seems to me that if we can tend to those, um, then we have no real um, ethical foundation. Uh, in fact, my view is that Far from having a just a, a world anti-doping agency, we should have a world pro-doping agency. The responsibility of which is to invest into safer forms of human of human enhancement. And um, they're so focused on just catching people who are doing stuff on their bad list that in fact they, they neglect the broader culture of performance enhancement, which is which is the real problem. Back in two thousand and five, the American Academy of Pediatrics made this point. They said. You know, WADA's you know, great and all, but, but actually people are modifying themselves not just for elite sports. This is a wider culture of human enhancement that we're moving into. And WADA's going to be fighting the tide if it expects to really change this, this shift. So I think a new response is really required. Fascinating. And look, shifting focus slightly, um, you've also produced uh, or given certainly a number of talks and produced research on social media, including a recent keynote at... Um, a titled Mobile Media Morality. Could you share with us sort of your, your, what, what you're doing in relation to mobile media and social media? 
Well, it seems to me that what's distinct about our times uh, in terms of digital technology is not just social, but actually the, the broader kind of culture of mobility, which is which is inextricable from this. It's, social media is, is often sort of seen as synonymous with things like Facebook, YouTube, uh, Flickr, Twitter, those big platforms that, that occupy a lot of our attention, that um, take up a lot of our time uh, and really are capturing a lot of our kind of communications with each other are just part of what I think is a, a wider kind of culture of, of moving within these sort of um, hybrid lives that we're leading where we're, we're constantly online but also constantly physically present too. And uh, when thinking about mobile media and morality, I guess my, my question, my research questions within that were how do we undertake research within these environments uh, in a way that we can, we can claim to be ethical? Um, for example, are you, if you wanted to undertake some research on Twitter, um, what could you do to ensure that you protect the, uh, um, the rights, the freedoms, the integrity of the informants that you want to cite, for instance? It, it gets very hard as a researcher to try to uh, protect those individuals to ensure that if, they, if you quote them, for example, um, that you can allow your research once published to, to support sort of anonymity. Of, of those informants, because ultimately, if you've got a direct quote from a platform, someone could just Google it and find the originator quite easily. So there are some real challenges as a researcher to try to do this kind of work in a way that protects uh, the individuals who are, who are informing your findings. And, um, and so that work was trying to address some of those challenges. And what sort of applications do you see this having? I mean, you're, you're obviously working with young athletes at the moment, for example. Where, where is this you attempting to come to terms with the broader sort of environment of, of transnational mobilities, or is this something that you're, you, you, you're very practical and sort of have a lot of focus around much of your activities? Where, where does this lead? Well, there are two aspects of it. With everything I do, I try to link the research questions with the kind of applied practical side of things. So um, what I'm doing here is, is actually road testing the technology to see what we can get out of Google Plus, but also to get those perspectives on on what sorts of uh, worries or anxieties people have about the technology and to document those, to, to have a record of what people, how people feel and, and also to decide to kind of be, to have something that would allow us in a couple of years from now to kind of look back on that moment when wearable technologies became a reality and to study the shift in that in that kind of culture, to see whether, in fact, as you mentioned earlier, the worries that people have about this pervasive recording uh, remain significant or not. A few years ago, uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg famously said that privacy is dead, and I think that that's a question that people have really interrogated since that. But um, but it gets it gets harder to to, to kind of argue argue against because. Because we do live in, in an increasingly semantic web, the the intelligence of machines now is is remarkable. F through using Google Glass, I discovered something called Google Auto Awesome, which is a which is a piece of uh, you know semi-intelligent technology. So if I go out and shoot a bunch of stuff at the Olympic Games, and then come back to my office and synchronize it with my Google account, it will automatically package the footage, the films, the images into one final edit without me having to do anything. And it works really well. It's, it's a remarkable piece of technology. And, you know, I look at that and think, wow, this is taking one of the most difficult aspects of humanity, which is creativity, 
and doing a really good job of automating that process. And if ultimately art and creativity is is possible to reduce to an algorithm, then what's left for us to do as humans? And those sorts of questions for me are really fascinating. Okay, and, and it sort of leads to me, what what can we look forward to next in your sort of activities, publications and talks and so on? What are you, what, what will you be doing in, over the next year or so? Well, over the next 12 months, I'll be working on um, one project that is uh, looking at the use of, of, of drones within a creative context. So we've uh, just won a grant to spend 12 months experimenting with uh, quadcopters, these uh, sort of flying, unmanned flying machines uh, that allow you to attach a camera to it and film all kinds of things. So we want to explore the history of, of how science fiction has imagined the future of unmanned flying vehicles. So what kind of future did that look like through the eyes of science fiction writers and filmmakers? But then also take the technology to communities that would otherwise perhaps not have access to it. So how would a, a rural community of elderly people imagine using this technology within their lives um, to see what sorts, of, what sorts of views they would have of it and what sorts of views they would have of its uses too? Um, at the end of this, we hope to have a way of, of trying to help arts organisations figure out how to use these drones within their own creative output. And there are lots of issues around it because these are, you know, these are complicated devices. They are dangerous devices. But you already see sort of um, examples of their application to society. So, for instance, one street headline a couple of weeks ago was of a um, of, of uh, a drone that that, that found. Uh, an elderly man who had gone missing. So it, this drone was able to go out and locate the person where, where the kind of human rescue services were unable. There's also talk about Amazon doing kind of personalised delivery of things using drones rather than post postmen, if you like. So the sorts of applications are really quite remarkable and um, and can really change how we... You know, it goes back to how we think about what's, what's around us and what sorts of uh, ways we interact with the world. Um, you could imagine a, uh, for example, an autonomous vehicle, let's say a, a self-driving Google car that has its very own drone to accompany it. It's able to kind of go and scout out different things and, 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 and keep an eye on your, um, your safety. So it's something that could be a kind of companion to people. Um, and I think we might find more of this being used. I'm currently about to move into a new position uh, as Chair of Science Communication and Digital Media in a School of Environment and Life Sciences at Salford University. And there's a lot of work around using drone technology to capture environmental change. Uh, so you can imagine uh, what's been developed recently is sort of nano-sized drones. So if you imagine a swarm of bees uh, that are effectively robots, uh, that gives you a sense of what this technology would look like. And if you could have those, uh, those machines go out and fly over different terrains, um, you can capture all kinds of data about it that would allow you to have an understanding of what's taking place within that environment. Um, it's also apparent within an agricultural context that drones are being used to uh, understand you know, conservation, understand uh, climatic change. Um, but even things like, uh, I met one guy recently that uh, is using drones to count his cows. You know, one of the, <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a farmer and you've got a lot of cows, one of the things you need to do is count them every day. And drones are allowing him to do that in a much more efficient way. So there's lots of sort of everyday applications to this technology. Uh, technology that 20 years ago would have seemed so futuristic, but it now has that application within a quite mundane but everyday uh, but necessary and useful context. Well, that's... Uh... 
Yeah, that, um, I actually really look forward to actually following the outcomes of that research. So, look, Andy, I just want to say thank you for joining me on the, the for the Media Sport podcast series. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Good to speak to you.